That Away, my podcast where I discuss writing specifically today. I'm not discussing anybody's writing. I'm reading straightforward a new story entitled Chester Studi, and it is taking place in the continuity of My Little Demise of the Trinity Universe. If you have not read that book, you can listen. If you haven't read any of my books, you can listen. It won't hurt you, but it won't hurt you to go back and read that stuff. And if you're not familiar with my work, I've read a lot of it on the podcast, and you can listen to it for free. This I wrote specifically for the podcast, and unlike my Nero series or the Ken 2015 uh, podcast that I did, I am just reading this, no music, no commentary, it's just going to be me and the story. I'm going to give you a little preface before I go into this, but first, I do want to talk ever so briefly about the two movies that I watched yesterday, Barbie and Oppenheimer. My wife and I went to go see Oppenheimer first. We took a little break. We went to Target, and then we went to see Barbie right afterwards. We had a very full movie day, and I have to tell you, I wrote some brief reviews for them on my Facebook, and I'll read them to you now, because I know that's what you you came here for, my opinions on movies that you may or may not have seen yet. I saw this on July 22nd, yesterday, so they're, they're still really new right now. So there's a chance that you haven't seen them yet. I don't think anything that I'm going to say is a spoiler. No major plot spoilers. And Oppenheimer is based on actual events. So there's that. It's actually based on a book that's based on actual events. But aside from that, I always like to preface my long Facebook post with uh, me mocking myself, be, be, being my typical self-deprecating self. Since I know everyone and their Uncle Jerry is anticipating my reviews of Oppenheimer and Barbie more than the films themselves, no, no one asked for my opinions, but here you go. I gave Oppenheimer and Barbie both 8 out of 10, which probably seems ludicrous, but they accomplish very different things. Chris Nolan is a great director, but indulge me for a moment. The other day, I posted a Substack ass, uh, ooh, essay about The Flash and DC and referenced Nolan and Oppenheimer. Many people forget Nolan was one of the hands that helmed the DCEU and the vision that many deemed a failure. However, I basically stated he didn't find his own voice as a director until after Batman Begins because his influences were largely responsible for his success as a director. Memento and Insomnia come across to me as heavily Fincher-influenced, and I figured Oppenheimer was likely a testament to how Nolan wants to be the next Spielberg. But as my wife and I left the theater, the first thing she said about Oppenheimer was how she could see the social network influence. I kind of think she might be one of the few people able to see the movie without Nolan goggles, because she doesn't care about Christopher Nolan, and point out that the movie was structured similarly to Fincher's The Social Network. It's just that Fincher paced The Social Network a lot better. Oppenheimer's climax, if you didn't realize by the subject matter alone, is when the scientists successfully build and test the bomb. You still have an hour film left after that. I appreciate what Nolan was doing, and even I was wondering when it would end. The practically violently paced editing at the beginning to shove all the details of Oppenheimer's life into the first half hour of the film compared to the glacial pace of the last hour makes me wonder why Nolan was allowed three hours of film to tell this story. It's basically two films in one, the building of the bomb and the attempt of Louis Strauss to destroy Oppenheimer's legacy. A brilliant film that couldn't have been a ma- that could have been a masterpiece if Nolan had someone to slap his hand. Now, I'm not suggesting that we go back in time or do a re-edit on the movie. As it stands, Oppenheimer is a great statement. I could feel the more conservative crowd around me leave the theater a little upset that they just watched an anti-war film. So I'm going to interject here and say Oppenheimer is great, but its director gets in its way. 
and I think that as as someone who is a, a creative person, uh, an author, a musician, you know, I've made missteps in my career. Um, and maybe there are people who feel that my books would be a lot better if they had someone else edit them other than myself. But see, here's the difference between me and Christopher Nolan. Christopher Nolan is a genius. Christopher Nolan has a lot more access to better editors than I do. He has a major movie studio behind him. He can do anything he wants, and yet he still chooses to put out his vision his way. And I don't think that anyone interfered with that because they know that Nolan's going to cook, and he's going to cook up something that's profitable, unlike Tenet, I guess. Barbie only had one part that made me tense. The movie actually handles the fallacies of gender roles well, but the inclusion of Matchbox Matchbox 20's push, a song about a woman violently and mentally abusing a man, felt like a glib punchline during a certain scene. Otherwise, the performances, set design, and pacing were all good. The only casting decision I questioned was Will Ferrell, who essentially played D'Angelo from The Office. He wasn't bad, but in a film that gives every young liberal actor in Hollywood a part, surely someone else could have taken that role. Rhea Perlman actually made my heart melt with her appearance and was a far cry from Carla from Cheers. I do wonder if the build-up to Barbie wanting to be human was all for the sake of a joke in the final scene, though. The movie does all this work regarding autonomy and making Barbie Land a fair place for Barbies and Kens, and I was impressed with the commentary on toxic masculinity, but she wants to leave Utopia for a flawed world where she can die? As part of my preface, I have to say, my wife is in the living room, as she has been in so many of these episodes watching TV, so you might hear a little bit of this weird Predator show that she's watching. She really loves the Chris Hansen-style shows, Quite frankly, they make me very uncomfortable. I've watched plenty of plenty of that stuff with her. I don't like it because it's, number one, disgusting. Number two, it makes me think about what these men intend to do. And a lot of them are, are intending to do a lot more than just fuck a teenager. A lot of them come with ropes and guns and knives and drugs and all sorts of things in their cars with the intent to hurt these children. And it's disgusting to me. And much in the way that I would prefer not to think about zombies devouring my body, I would also prefer not to think about child predators. So I talked about Chester in the last episode, but chances are you didn't even listen. So this is the first time I've written someone, a person of color, that's a part of the Trinity. Not the first person of color in the series. The only book that I haven't written, I'm sorry, the only book that I have written, the only book that I wrote, (laughs) I was an English major, believe it or not. The only book that I wrote that doesn't have any notable people of color in it is green skin. And part of the reason why I didn't is because of where it's based, the social dynamics of this area. And also the fact that it's about a guy whose skin turns green. And I was worried that with my modest capabilities as an author, that if I did have any inclusion of race that the whole thing would be would be about race and the book is about a in a nutshell a quarter life crisis it's much more than that of course but i had two women in the trinity in surviving new america a trans woman i have this fantastic detective who happens to be a black man in Surviving New America, named Jamarin Studi. I based him a lot on Reno Wilson because I was really impressed with his performance in the show Good Girls, so he was kind of like a model for the character. But I've never had a a protagonist who was a person of color that was also part of the Trinity. The only person 
there are two people of color previously who were part of the Trinity, but they weren't major characters. There was the, I don't even know if he had a name and this, you know, goes back to me being stupid, I guess, but I can't remember, but there is a short story that was very, very brief in toxic literature, which is now out of print. And there was a native American man who was in the Trinity and then in Demise of the Trinity in Birch, there's Aiden Zavala. And Aiden Zavala is from Mexico. So I felt very inclined to finally write a character that was a person of color in the Trinity. Not for the sake of doing so, by the way. I've been wanting to write this story for a while. And I've tried in the past and failed because it didn't hold up to my standards. So, like, you know, Surviving New America. Surviving New America was written in a very short amount of time. But in all actuality, there was a draft of a novel that didn't see the light of day that heavily influenced the direction I took in Surviving New America. So I kind of had an outline of sorts. There's a lot of thought as a white author that I have to put into how I write a person of color. Just like there's a lot of thought that I have to as a man when I write a woman. And anyone who questions, any, what's the difference between writing a man and a woman? What's the difference between writing a white character and a black character? You are either trying to bait me <laughs> into giving you some sort of strange answer or a provocative answer that gets me in trouble with someone out there. Or you're, you don't know anything about gender dynamics and racial dynamics. And briefly, I will give you a little bit of context for this. Not that you need it. It's just that I, I think it's necessary. I guess necessary would be need, Patrick. Okay. So in the events that take place between Demise of the Trinity, my first novel, and Surviving New America... There is about 80 years where there's no electricity. People are surviving through any means necessary. And I wrote Surviving New America during 2020. So right when that was going on, we had the race riots against the police. And we also had the disease, COVID-19, the virus. So... I had a lot kind of simmering in my mind. And the first thing that I really thought out was it made sense, especially given the current state of the South and the country at large, really, is that if we had a total blackout and people had to steal or learn how to hunt and grow their own food the one of the first casualties would probably be black people unfortunately now i had to be very mindful of this and it's interesting because my african american literature professor 2 years after i wrote surviving new america was talking about how so many utopia and science fiction stories are just a bunch of white people. There are no black people. And he was like, really? Your vision of a perfect future doesn't have any people of color? And, you know, I made sure to give a history on why this was happening. And I made sure to have a character that, first of all, I, I fell in love with writing, Jamarin Studi, someone who was intelligent, and a major part of moving the story and the plot forward. So I wrote People of Color in Price of the Trinity, and I still don't know whether or not I was successful at doing so. Uh, I don't know. I know a lot of people who've read my books, and I don't know anyone who would have a negative opinion of that if they've read the book. So, 
I guess I got that going for me. Anyway, enough of the the prologue and the preface and the author's notes here. Let's get into the story. Mistress Collins put her full weight into my spine as she buckled the leather strap keeping my torso bound to the metal table, which was so cold I couldn't stop my body jerking away whenever they forced me down. Unlike the other kids, my behavior wasn't corrected by her wooden paddle or a belt because pain has never been a deterrent and often a comforting motivation for when the men tackled me and dragged me to the room. Once a month, regardless of my behavior, Collins summoned me to have my brush wire hair shaved, which is when they first noticed that the razor never cut my skin. I haven't been to class since I was 14 when a teacher resigned from the facility after I broke his nose with a chair when he tried to discipline me for not doing my algebra work. Since then, Collins put me in a room that used to be a janitorial closet with a steel door that only opens from the outside. My first night, I ran into that door repeatedly and even tried climbing the wall to see if I could somehow break through the ceiling. What I learned from the books Mistress Collins allowed me to read was that New America has never revived the old United States economy, and there are less than five millionaires in the world. While government's leaders and citizens almost agree that the new ways are better for everyone, so there's less starving and illness, homeless children enter the education and boarding system which President Hatcher designed as a means to ready us for mandatory military service. None of us are allowed off-campus grounds, receive minimal recreation hours outside of the gymnasium, and all in the name of protecting and housing us. Children who attempt escaping the property receive the harshest punishment through isolation, physical punishment, and withheld meals. At one point, Collins experimented with how long I could go without food as I went 30 days in my room only for no one to bring my lunch. I recall how my stomach hurt for a few days and my equilibrium made me constantly dizzy and I stopped being able to tell how much time passed. That experience and the time she strapped me down to that cold table swirl in my mind as I stand in her office on my 18th birthday which I only know because a guard told me, Happy birthday, cocksucker. Mr. Studi, Collins fills out paperwork while two guards hold the chains on each of my wrists. You're now a legal adult and therefore receiving discharge notice from the new American Education and Rehabilitation System. As of this moment, you are no longer our responsibility and may leave school grounds. This also means in the future... You cannot return for any reason. Do you have any questions concerning your future placement in the new American army? No, I say. But I do intend to come back when I kill you, Mistress Collins. Good luck getting past the security, Chester. If you make it through your enlistment and still hold such a grudge, I encourage you to come back and allow our guards to kick your chicken shit ass. A bus is waiting for me outside the front gate which I've never been past. I consider taking the guard's weapons and start my planned killing spree, but the trees across the road and brown grass catch my attention since I've never seen either up close. The driver exits the rusted white vehicle as I'm leaning down to touch the ground. Jester Studi, he asks. That's me, I say. We need to be on base in the next half hour. You can play with the grass there. What happens if I don't go on that bus? You'll be arrested for refusal to enlist and serve your country. What are the benefits of joining the army? I ask. Jesus, he says. They really don't teach y'all shit here, do they? You get three meals a day, eight hours of rest every evening, a clean uniform, your own room, and a paycheck every two weeks. In two to three years, you may be eligible for discharge. Very few people re-enlist. You can do whatever the hell you want after that. Sound good? I guess it's better than this place, I say. 
I get my discharge paperwork as a private first class in 2161 after living at Fort Carter for three years, learning how to shoot guns, run laps, fight dummies, and contemplate suicide over boredom. New America hasn't been at war since our nation's foundation in 2085, back when a bunch of white guys got together to restore the electricity throughout the world and decided to take away states' rights so that the country could be run by a few dicks instead of a lot of them. With my discharge paperwork, I also take a restored Korth Silver Mongoose 357 revolver and two boxes of ammunition that I made my last week intending to find Mistress Collins and make her suck on the barrel before I pay her back for damaging me. She evidently thought my time in the military might ease my hate toward her, but instead I thought about her every day, envisioned her face at the end of every target and masturbated to the thought of her corpse falling backwards in a bloody mass. Very few men or women have the opportunity to actually shoot someone in the new American army, and I intend to demonstrate whether their field training works. However, Fort Carter is in Georgia, and the school was in another state, which was never disclosed to me when I was in their care or the few minutes prior to my military enlistment. I was born in Alabama, though I can't remember my parents nor know their names, and the orphans get shipped to a random school within the system via teleportation. None of the schools have actual names for the protection of the children and staff, and some president made this a law as the result of shootings that took place in Atlanta around 2141, a year after I was born. Obviously, the military won't let me go through records or even the Fort Carter Teleportation Depot timestamp, so I need to get to Washington, D.C. to view federal records. Though I have my salary saved, I lack a family to go home to and no place to live, and Atlanta is the obvious choice for the time being given proximity to Fort Carter. I feel no inherent connection to Alabama nor any region, so where I end up is simply where I choose to stop moving. No part of me considers economy, crime rates, or whatever white people ponder when they relocate. Atlanta also attracts people in the Trinity for some reason, though I'm not certain that explains my condition as I'm impervious to physical damage and disease. I read about Birch in a history book Mistress Collins put in my stack, and even researchers pondered if he was real since all televised footage of the 2033 New York attack is lost, and some theorized that President Hatcher revived the Trinity myth to gain a second term. Wouldn't there be another one of us out there, too? My room at Fort Carter was part of Fort Benning, but poorly restored well before my birth and never properly kept. As I'm finding through my apartment search, Atlanta doesn't have many buildings from the past century. Even old office space serves as housing now, so I'm not moving up in the world so much as making lateral changes. Around 3 this afternoon, I meet with the property and leasing manager, Bryce, who I spoke to on a payphone as I looked through the yellow pages for what felt like weeks. I'm still in my uniform and only have a small bag to carry my plain clothes, so I'm not exactly hiring two guys in a truck to move somewhere. The building is around Midtown and used to house a telecommunications company before Old America fell, so I expect old cheap carpet and plain white walls that haven't been painted since teleportation spread through the nation. When I head to the management office, a woman sitting at a desk looks up at me for only a split second before averting her attention back to the blank ledger she was pretending to fill out. Uh... Hey! I knock on the door. Bryce, a 30-something man with the complexion of a skeleton, turns his head toward me and squints a little. Yeah? He asks. I called earlier in about an apartment, I say. Chester Studi? You called here? Yeah. And spoke to... You! I pointed the nameplate on his desk. Well, I think I misled you. Bryce says. We're at full capacity right, right about now. You told me you had four empty units, I say. No, he says. I could leave to find another place to live. But I suspect that Bryce isn't telling me the truth and his story changed because he saw 
what I look like. Perhaps he's not prejudiced outside of work, which doesn't make him any less of a bigot. But I might understand if he fears residents might complain about me. Not many people look like me around here anymore thanks to the dark years when those getting by without power or manufactured food were killing to survive. Shutting the door, I lean against the wall and cross my arms while Bryce puts his hand on the phone as a gesture that he's about to call the police. If you pick up that phone, it's your secretary that's going to call the cops, I say. You may not live to see them. Please leave, he starts to dial. After I hang up the receiver and toss the unit off the desk, the revolver tells Bryce that he made a mistake, though perhaps I'm also confirming a bias. Now, I don't often threaten people with firearms, I say, because I've only threatened to hurt someone once before, and I'd like to have a place where I can contemplate where I'm headed in life. Why don't we start over, Bryce? Sure. Bryce nods. Are you going to go through this process and call the police when I leave? No. Do you want to see something really cool, Bryce? As long as it doesn't involve me and that gun. What if I give you the gun? Me? Bryce points at himself. I put the revolver on the desk and hold up my arms while nodding that he should pick up the gun. As if trying to snatch a penny from my hand, Bryce grabs the gun and holds it to his chest before putting his finger on the trigger and pointing the barrel at me. Now Bryce, I say, if you pull that trigger, your secretary will probably call the police or run screaming for someone to help. I'll have a hole in my uniform and you better know that gun doesn't have a serial number or any indication that belongs to anyone. Nobody will know it isn't yours. I don't need to shoot you, he says. I'm just going to call the cops. See, I knew you were a liar. He pulls the trigger without even touching the hammer. So I have the gun back in my hand before he realizes the safety is still on. I put the revolver in my belt and point down at the desk. Let me sign a lease, I say. I can put money down today. There's no way, Bryce says. You just threatened me with a fake gun. I'm calling the police as soon as you leave. Okay. In one motion, I click the safety off, pull the hammer back, and pull the trigger. Bryce transforms into a ball after a girlish yelp, and the hole in his desk might serve as a reminder that he almost died for being a prejudiced prick. As I proclaimed, the secretary screams and the sound of her shoes echoes against the tiled floor. Do you think they'll come before you're dead? I ask. Hey, I'm sorry, but we really don't have any open apartments. Killing me won't change that. Show me, I say. Pull out your ledger with all the residents and units. I don't have that, Bryce says. You're willing to die for a lie. I never lied to you. Another bullet hits the phone on the floor, and Bryce jumps three feet in the opposite direction before I pin him down and press the warm end of the revolver on his temple. Why don't you want me to live here? I ask. You're kind of proving my point right now, Bryce says. You pretended not to remember talking to me when you saw me. Because of your uniform, he says. I don't like renting to people right out of the military. They're all young and hostile. The last time we ended up with bullet holes in one of the bathroom walls. This doesn't sound made up. And I did show up in my uniform as if I was about to recruit kids to sign up early and get their free pair of patent leather shoes. What else was I supposed to assume when he had turned me away as soon as he saw me, though? I get up and reach over to put the phone back on, the, on his desk and help Bryce off the floor because... I should have left as soon as he told me there weren't any available units. I guess I am young and hostile, I say. I I've been on the phone since I got into the city, and 
You were the first person to tell me there was something I could move into today. All I have is what you're looking at. Get out of here before the cops show up, Bryce says. I'll tell them it was an accident. He holds out his hand, which I assume means he'll cover for me if I give him the gun. I could survive any brute force from the police, but I chose not to hurt Bryce for some reason. Am I questioning the moral aspect or merely biding my time before I find Collins? Then again, Bryce lied to me before and possibly made up his policy against providing housing to a veteran. Killing him will link me to a much more heinous crime than simply shooting a desk and an old phone. Tell them whatever you want, I say. When I leave the building, there are no sirens and people aren't running with their hands in the air as if trying to flee an unknown gunman. Instead, there's a tall man leaning against the lamppost looking at me as I head up the sidewalk and figure I, I might have to stay in a motel for a while. There's housing for homeless people, but I'm not that broke yet. Excuse me. The tall man holds up his finger. He's about six inches bigger than I am and pretty well built for a guy with white hair and distinct wrinkles around the eyes. There's something about white people as they age almost turning a shade of light yellow, but this guy doesn't have any freckles or liver spots either. Can't talk. I keep moving. When he holds out his arm to block me, I push away and almost grab the revolver. My temper is going to end me up in the same kind of cell Collins put me in. Grabbing me is assault, and I have a right to defend myself, so I punch him in the chest only for my fist to burn like I stuck my hand on a stovetop. How much money should I put down? He pulls me off the ground. Fuck you, I say. Let go. He lets the gun fall on the cement and pushes me hard on my back as he leans down to grab my revolver. I guess I'm about to play the same game I did with Bryce since none of the bullets will even break my skin. I would have won that bad, he says. You were the one making all the noise. You better fire every one of those bullets before I can take the gun back, I say. Well, shit. He unloads the four remaining bullets on the ground and kicks them in a nearby gutter. You didn't kill anyone, did you? Should have, I say. I'm looking for it right now. Young man. He leans over me. The uniform and water behind your ears tell me you're new in town. My ears aren't wet, mister, I say. I would have bled it all out of me a long time ago if they could have broken my skin. He looks closely at me and grabs my left cheek before hauling his fist back and landing a right on my nose. I see spots and there's a painful impulse in the front of my face, but I can still breathe when the shock subsides. Oh. He lets go and takes a step back. How old are you? Twenty-one, I say. A little young for you, huh? No, I just wanted to do the math. You were born in 2140, right? It's like I'm talking to a human calculator. What's your name? I was going, I gesture. Leaving. Oh, the cops aren't going to show up over a couple of gunshots, the man says. That's why I'm here anyway. Are you a cop? I ask. No, he says. My name is Nero. A black car down the street comes alive as the engine and lights fire on like a predator waiting in the shadows, but when the vehicle draws near, there's no driver. Nero walks away and motions for me to follow as he gets inside, which sinks with the sirens echoing against the large buildings growing louder each second. Before I even shut the passenger door, Nero pulls the steering wheel to the left and the tires scream beneath us and I'm forced back into the seat. I thought you said the cops wouldn't show, I ask. I didn't want you to run away, Nero says. I imagine someone saw what you looked like and called them, 
So the police are racist? I say. What? He says. You're wearing a military uniform, you're shining from sweat, and you had a gun. Why would you think the police are racist? Come on! I don't know if you've looked around, but there are not a lot of black people. It's hard to be racist when there's no one around to hate. You just got out of the military, right? Was anyone racist in there? No, I say. So, where do you come from? Obviously not from around here. I grew up in a school for orphans. That's worse than the army. Sorry. Chester, I say. Nero lives a good distance from any teleportation terminals, and a high black iron fence surrounds his property as if anyone would bother winding themselves to walk up the gravel road leading to his front gate. We enter the house from the garage with a blast of air conditioning welcoming us as we trek down the hallways leading into the kitchen. I bet you haven't eaten anything today, Nero says. It's almost dinner time. Base didn't even let me have breakfast before they kicked me out, I say. I remember that, Nero says. Miss Hall was serving pancakes the morning I left. My dad didn't let me have any carbs when I came back home. You look really lean for your age. I'm saving the sweets for when I retire. Nero opens the refrigerator and pulls out a glass box containing chicken breast and sets out four on a cutting board. Retire from what? I ask. Exactly. We don't retire. People in the Trinity are always on reserve. Trinity? I wasn't sure it was real. The day you were born, I lost the only friends I ever had. I woke up next to my girlfriend with a wooden beam through her, and you've probably heard of Birch. He disappeared. No explanation. I'm not certain what to say, and the reality of the situation strikes me as incomprehensible because the premise of the Trinity is so strange, it's almost mythical. How am I I a part of this when my only importance in life was when Collins used me as a pincushion? Earlier, Nero gestures as he cuts the meat, when you were at the apartment building, what made you think you were being discriminated against? When I called the property manager, he told me there were four vacant units. When he saw me, he changed his whole attitude and wouldn't rent to me. Damn. Probably was a bigot, huh? I'm sorry if I tried contradicting you earlier. I've never experienced what you go through. Better than being beaten and locked in a chest, I guess. I told my headmistress, her name was Mistress Collins, that... When I got out of the military, I'd find her. I don't even know where to start looking because I don't know where the school was. When you find this Collins lady, you're going to kill her? Yeah. I can make a call to public records, Nero says. Even if I don't think it's good to kill a person, it's good to confront what you think is your purpose. You know... I didn't kill anyone until I was much older than you. It's something I try not to do. I don't want to kill anyone except for her, but I'll kill anyone who tries blocking my path. The Trinity is supposed to end lives. Nero turns away from me to put butter in a pan. No matter what we do in life, we always get to heaven. My dad raised me to never hurt the people the way others do. Birch didn't enjoy it either. It's not something you easily grow a taste for. I'd like to be a nobleman who keeps his promises, I smirk. But what are you going to do after you find Collins? Nero asks. Do you think it'll fulfill something in you that'll last? I guess, I say. I've been thinking about her for a long time. Why not tie her down and rape her, torture her? Make her eat your shit. You could do a lot worse than kill someone. You want me to rape a middle-aged woman? No, Nero says. I want you to question your methods. Why kill her? 
she might end up in heaven and you'll have to see her again one day. That's not much of a trade-off. While I doubt Mistress Collins forgot about me or my promise, she's not thinking about me every day or fantasizing about hurting me. I didn't make an impression on her that forces her awake at night or has her looking behind her whenever she crosses the street. Killing her only serves one purpose and doesn't adequately punish her. But I like the idea of destroying everything that she inhabits, including her body. I hope you like lemon, Nero says. I'm making lemon pepper chicken. Never had it, I say. I'm going to help you with your whole revenge business. But I need a favor in return. Let's hear it. We need to find Birch somehow. Otherwise, you and I are going to be alive until the end of the world. Live forever, you mean? The world is going to end one day. I don't want to be 10,000 years old and have to endure the apocalypse. You want to find him so you can die? Perhaps not in the immediate future, but we need him for other reasons. The Trinity is three people, not two men with a generational gap. Nero's guest room is significantly bigger than the room I slept in as a child and certainly more private than my housing at Fort Carter. He offers to wash my uniform and provides me with some sweatpants and an oversized shirt to sleep in, and despite his generosity and assurance to find Collins won't solve my actual problems, I replay my time at the school in my head while I try to sleep. While depriving me of food and beating me didn't resolve my... Behavioral issues, Collins ordered two security guards to hang me upside down in the basement where she tried waterboarding me by holding my head in a water bucket. I can't die yet inhaling water through my nose and feeling my lungs feel burned unlike the hunger pains when I went a month without meals. During one of my enforced fasts, she only allowed me to eat peppers that made my eyes water as my stomach curdled and I had liquid shits for days. Despite her efforts to correct me, I still fought against the guards. Disobeyed any instructor who tried to lecture me and tried spitting in Colin's face whenever I saw her. Nero wakes me up by setting a glass of water down on the bedside table and holds up a printed sheet of paper with an address. Veldosta, Nero says. You were right here in Georgia the whole time. How far away? I ask. We can't teleport directly to Valdosta. The entire town is a secured zone specifically for that school of yours. It's unlikely she even lives there. I can drive us there in about three hours, but you can't get in town without any security clearance. There's no way to find her address? I ask. Not with a fake name, he says. I looked at their listing in the archives last night. No one uses a real name there. That's probably why she was so confident you wouldn't make good on your threat. Promise, I say. And I'm making good on my promise. We have the option to wait for her to leave town and follow her home, but my concern is that she may not work there anymore. Hell, you made her sound old. Maybe she's dead. Maybe she retired and moved. Then we can't do this by gently investigating, I say. We need to break in and find her where she is. That's a little brash, Nero says. I'm sure they have tasers and pepper spray. One shot to the eyes and you're on the ground. We're not going to find her by waiting in a car for her to drive past us. Probably not, Nero says. But I bet we can cut the electricity to the entire town and cause a security lockdown. I can pose as a government official there to investigate. All I need to do is gain access to their employee files. I might need you to do something to distract them, though. If you're able to drive inside the town, I can hide in your trunk and improvise. How would I get you out of there, then? What if you get captured? I'll need something to keep anyone off me, then. Specifically what? If there are kids in that school, I can't let you have a gun. And, you know, if they're involved, I can't do this. Admittedly, I never considered a kid getting hurt, but Collins and the faculty are hurting those children every day. 
Nero might come up with a better plan, so I need to top whatever he's going to suggest because this was my dream. I can bribe some security crew to give us information, Nero says. If they don't take the money, we'll reevaluate. You said I, y- you couldn't risk hurting kids, right? That's probably a school like this in every state ter- territory. I wasn't allowed outside. The way that woman tortured me was beyond anything I ever did. There might be a Mistress Collins in every one of those places, but we're not about to road trip and all over the country. I thought your goal was to kill this woman, Nero asked. Suddenly you're finding a greater purpose through your bloodlust. Is it true that Birch helped President Hatcher get a second term? I heard that same story. I don't know, though. If he were here, he could find her for us and we wouldn't need a plan. I was thinking we could blackmail the president into closing all the schools. And then those kids would be homeless without a proper transitional period. I appreciate that you're thinking broader. Not long after you were born, we had an issue with missing kids in Atlanta. I read about that. Like, the cops found the kids, but the guy they arrested didn't even get to go to trial because he got beat to death in his holding cell. You said the cops found the kids, Nero asked. That might be what you read in a book, but I am the one who found them. And I am not about to be hypocritical and put more children at risk for things like sex trafficking all because you want to find one woman. Once Nero leaves me alone, I inwardly concede we'd be doing more harm than good by attacking the school system. Neither of us are politicians who are going to spend years working on education and housing reform for orphans. We need to reverse the plan and find Birch first so that we can skip all the Mission Impossible scenes and hire Superman instead of Tom Cruise. Then again, Birch may not want to hurt someone he perceives as an innocent, helpless woman and kill us instead. I might float this idea to Nero, though he's likely to shut me down. Now that I know the school is in Valdosta, I should skip this Birch business and go find Mistress Collins myself. I'm more inclined to honor my word to Nero since he offered to help, and three men in the Trinity against an entire town sounds better than just me. I go downstairs where two mugs of hot tea sit on the kitchen island, yet there's no food. Nero might be older and stuck in his diet regime, but I am 21 and hungry, so I want my breakfast. Can we get some pancakes or eggs before we find this birch guy, I ask. Sit down with me, Nero pulls out a chair. How do we find him, by the way? Seems like you would have found out by now if if you knew where he was. What do you know about Satan, Chester? The tea burns my upper lip when I try a sip from the hot ceramic mug. Nero offers me a small towel as I'm supposed to cool the heat with a cloth. Uh, About as much as I know about God, I say. Pretty much nil. Birch destroyed Lucifer and installed a woman we call Lilith as Satan. She told me that Birch wasn't dead, but... He wasn't anywhere in this dimension. I have a theory he shifted into another dimension, which we can't access because we lack his power. However, if other timelines or dimensions exist, there must be a heaven and hell for them, right? So we have a way in through hell if Lilith will let us enter her domain. Otherwise, I don't know. Maybe there's a purgatory. How was Birch able to destroy Lucifer, I ask. He killed Lucifer's earth form twice. Nero takes a drink from his mug and breathes in sharply from the heat. I was there the second time. Then he assumed Satan's power here, went to hell, and removed Lucifer's soul. And we haven't heard from the old devil since. So Lilith has an earth form? Nero contemplates his teeth for a moment and sort of laughs to himself. I'm sure he considered killing Lilith before to take her power, so what's going to go wrong if we try? She doesn't have a lot of power here, Nero says. Birch saw to that. 
She's a good ally to have, Chester. My girlfriend's soul is down there, and I wouldn't want Lilith to cancel Lucifer's original agreement with Rosa. How do we summon this Lilith? Last time I saw her was in 2140 when I went to Emerald Isle. Birch's house was in pieces. I sold his land to developers, so we can't go trespassing on someone's property to summon Satan. You sold his land? Walking over to a drawer, Nero pulls out a legal pad with a pen where he starts writing something down. You know the Lord's Prayer, right? Nero asks. I don't even know how to pray. I'm writing it down for us. Well, backwards anyway. Does this qualify as a satanic ritual or witchcraft? If I get to go to heaven no matter what I do, then do I still rack up demerits with God through sins I commit? Summoning Satan must violate some law the Almighty transcribed through a disciple at some point. There's smoke coming from the living room as Nero tries recounting the Lord's Prayer, and if I had my mug in my hand, I'd spill every drop of tea on myself when eyes appear in the white cloud. The involuntary noise I make gets Nero's attention, and he tosses the notepad down. I knew she was always listening in, Nero says. My ears were burning, you were talking about me so much, a voice says. A tall woman with curly hair that creates a dark aura around her sharp chin and cheekbones, wearing a leopard print dress, walks into the room. And each click of her heels seems to make my blood pump harder. I never met a girl my age I liked in school, and Mistress Collins kept me so isolated I couldn't act on my feelings if I did. I focused so hard on her that I never pursued any of the women on base because I didn't want any distraction. But this lady isn't like the girls from the army. What does she look like to you? Nero mumbles. You, you, you didn't tell me she was black, I say. She looks different to everyone based on their desires. She can also hear a lot better than you think, Lilith says. If this is Satan, I am all in on going to hell, even for a Birch Missing Child poster adventure. I'm not sure whether to take pride in my virginity or wish I'd brushed up on my skills before I met her. I see that I already have some favor in my court, Lilith says. He's probably met three pretty girls his whole life, Nero says. He'd fuck a sheep if he waited another minute to finally clean his pipes. You want to go to hell to find Birch. I must have been really bored to listen to the entire conversation where you brainstormed ways to kill an old lady. She's not super old, I say. Well, I am old enough, Lilith says. I know bad ideas. Neither of you know how to bring Birch back, and now that we have two out of three people in the Trinity in the same room, I know the answer. She puts a hand on my shoulder. And my heart might as well be a shitty dubstep song the way it rattles in my chest. If I could have a moment alone with her, I'll do anything, she asked. Has Nero told you about his departed love, Rosa? Lilith asked. Why bring her into this? Nero asked. Because, right around the time you were born, Birch went to hell to destroy the souls of two women who were part of the Trinity. He believed that if Lucifer had access to three souls who were in the Trinity, that reviving them would cause a tremendous imbalance on Earth. And God might respond by reviving the last three souls that entered heaven, Nero says. It's a theory, not fact. It's a theory you might need to test if you want to revive Birch, Lilith says. However... I'm only showing you the way I know might work. Otherwise, I'm willing to help this young man bring another soul to my domain. Lilith sets a small scroll down on the island countertop, and I know before looking that this is Mistress Collins' location. Never occurred to me to just ask Satan where I can find the hell bitch. Nero, you're always welcome to join your beloved in hell for eternity, Lilith says. She's bored without you down there. Well, why don't you just revive her then, I ask. 
that would cause an imbalance since there's supposed to be three of us already, right? Let's not chance destroying the world, Nero says. You've totally fucked my plan. I'll still help you, I say. We can find Birch. It's not like we'll die before we get a chance. Yet we have another option, Lilith says. If Nero is so keen on finding Birch, Rosa would make a suitable vessel to find him. How would that work? Nero asks. You know what, Lilith? Get out of my house. Go back to hell and we'll figure it out without you, okay? Chester? Lilith steps closer to me. If you want to take a chance, we might be able to find him without Nero. Go, Nero says. My brain feels a crash as if I ate a bunch of cookies 20 minutes ago and need to take a nap. Lilith's disappearance returns me to the seething hatred I felt for years over Collins, though her real name is apparently Angela Joyner, and she lives in Troopville, Georgia. There may be a teleportation terminal there, so I might not have to rely on Nero to do this. He'd likely try to talk me out of it. You know what? Nero says. I have another car you can take. I'll just order a new one from the GM factory. Why would I keep your car? I ask. Because I think you and I are done. I already know what you're going to do after you kill that woman. It may not be the very next day. But you're eventually going to sell your soul. Lilith is going to tell you that we can find Birch this or that way. And you'll always forget she's evil when you look into her eyes. She'll lead you on until she needs you. That's the power of Satan. And she's better at it than even Lucifer. But I, I told you I'd help, I say. I'm always going to honor my word, Nero. Pulling a key ring off the set of hooks next to the fridge, Nero tosses some keys on the counter and crosses his arms. If I accept this offer... I'm proving him right and letting my bloodlust blind me to what I value above vengeance. No, I say. If I'm going down there, you're coming with me, and we'll come right back here to figure out all this out together. Take the car, Chester, Nero says. We're too old to be playing superhero and sidekick together. This conversation parallels my last day at school when Mistress Collins dismissed me and my notions of revenge and getting in the vehicle to leave to never return. At some point in the future, Nero and I need to find Birch if only to ensure we're able to pass on. I keep waiting for life to get better, yet all I find is disappointment each day that has me hoping this is temporary. My entire childhood only knew hard blows in the rough hands of the school security. I find Angela Joyner's home on Blue Throat after lunchtime and... Since she's not in, I park down the street and figure I'll see what she has to eat. Riding high from speeding on the interstate and thoughts of my former schoolmaster's last groan, I neglected finding a weapon. She's not spry enough to fight back, so I might kill her with my hands. Do I strangle her or punch her head continuously until she's unrecognizable? Her backyard is recently mowed with flowers sprouting from healthy bushes against the rear of the house's bricks, which I contemplate as her back door is locked, and I see which window will be the easiest to break into without glass getting in the garden. There's a handheld metal shovel lying on the ground that fits under a unlocked window. So, Angela or Mistress Collins isn't too concerned about a former student hunting her down. Her confidence and anonymity sends images of her face breaking against the orange bricks lining the store-bought soil. Her cabinets hold jars of fruit and vegetable preserves rather than anything edible, and her fridge only has apple juice and an expired salmon filet. The freezer has some peas. Apparently she relies too heavily on the school cafeteria. I bet she took my meals home with her every day when I wasn't allowed to eat. Cheeseburger? Lilith sits on the dining room table with a brown paper bag torn open with a pistol and double cheeseburger looking back at me like two random kittens in a damp alleyway. I'd give up on killing anyone ever again if I could get a bite of Lilith. 
Her presence makes my hatred feel more akin to mild irritation over a steak being overcooked. I'm not selling my soul for a burger, I say. I can be generous for nothing in return, Lilith says. I'm halfway through the burger when a brown soda and a tall glass bottle appears, and I suck on the spout as velvet sweetness sends a burning sensation through my nose hairs. Food is the only physical evidence we have of love and happiness, Lilith says. Physical? I ask. When you send this lady to hell, what are your plans? I, I, I guess I'll find a place to live, I say. And then? Get a job or something. You're in the Trinity, Lilith says. That's a full-time job. It's your life. A bulletproof man doesn't have to work for a living. Stealing doesn't suit me, I say. You'll get into heaven no matter who you steal from, Chester. Do you happen to know when she's coming home? I ask. We have time to talk, Lilith says. Sitting so close to Lilith reminds me of that poor guy in Les Miserables talking about how he gazed at bread and pondered the consequences of breaking the glass that stood between him and starvation. Each movement she makes, even a flinch, sends an alarm through my nerves as if a siren blares as tiny men run around inside me. I'd like Birch to come back more than even Nero, Lilith says. I didn't want to acknowledge how much he meant to me for over a century, and losing him only reminded me that I could have stayed with him and been happy. He would have been happy and not tried to hurt himself. Do you know how isolating this job is? I shouldn't have accepted when he offered. Maybe he doesn't want to be found, I suggest. He never did. But he must come back. What's the alternative? You or Nero could destroy the world and accelerate your own demise. Nero will probably try before he's 70, so we have about 10 more years. What do you need from me? As I told you earlier, Lilith says, if you give me your soul, you may enter hell. Commune with Rosa, and the two of you might be able to break the barrier between dimensions. Why would you need my soul for that? I ask. Leverage against Birch. He's not going to destroy Rosa's soul, so he's not likely to touch yours either. He's also incentive for Nero. If all three of you belong to me, then if I resurrect Rosa, we might force Birch back. I guess I have ten years to think it over, I say. Not many men have told me no, Lilith says. I'd never tell you no. I'm just not saying yes. Two hours pass as I sit in the living room looking out the window waiting for Collins to pull into her driveway. She drives a GM Linden, which resembles a VW Bug and the passenger door has flowers painted in a distinct line from the side mirror to the handle. Once the garage opens, I huddle down behind a wall to listen for when she comes inside. I hold my breath because each time I inhale, my anticipation sharply echoes around me. Once she's at the sink washing her hands, I stand in the doorway and ready the 9mm pistol Lilith gave me. You said I wouldn't do it. I say. Collins turns around as if her face morphs into the back of her head and a shrill surprise comes with an exhale from her open mouth. I walk closer with the gun aimed at her stomach because I do not intend to let her die quickly. Angela, right? I ask. Chester. She holds a hand to her mouth. When I broke in here, I looked through your cabinets in the refrigerator, I say. I wasn't hungry enough to eat your rotten fish. It's not surprising you live like an old cat lady. The military really did you good, Colin says, breaking into a woman's home to threaten her. That cost her more time because a shot in the gut won't kill her instantly. The way her 
bony legs collapse and slide on the floor reminds me of a dog that tries to climb on a table and falls back. Threaten you? I kneel down. I came here because I made you a promise. I thought about that promise for three years, mistress. A little shit. Like you... I hit her in the left cheek with the butt of the pistol, climb on top of her, and press the barrel hard into her mouth. You're not going to talk to me like you used to anymore, you cunt. I say, I'll choke you to death with this thing and make you feel every second that you die. Pulling the gun out of her lips, I put the wet end at her temple. Did you eat all the food you kept for me? I ask. You're pressing down too hard on my chest, she says. I I can't breathe. You're gonna die soon, so it doesn't matter. Did you eat my food? No, she says. The teachers get better food than the students as compensation. Using the counter to pull myself off her, I press my foot down on her bullet wound. I should lock her in the garage with another shot to the stomach and let her slowly bleed out. If she tried her torture methods on another student, they'd be dead. This is merciful compared to what she put me through. Either kill her or put the gun away, a voice says. A white man with a buzz scalp and graying eyes comes into the room from the hallway where the bathroom and bedroom are. I move to put the gun on him and the metal dissolves out of my hand. First I meet Satan, who is a a beautiful woman. Today, I can only assume this guy is Lucifer or death personified. Rosa told me you were looking for me, he says. Birch? I figured the Trinity was dissolved before I left. I didn't want to revive the cycle. Nero wanted to find you. I just wanted to kill this old bitch. Hmm. Birch looks down at Collins. I don't like to make people suffer before they die. After snapping his fingers, Mr. Collins looks up at me and smiles. Her eyes start circling before they fix on the ceiling, and her chest stops moving. Why did you come back and take this away from me? I ask. Because I was never meant to leave, he says. Now, we need to see Nero. Nero.